Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I still pinch myself, but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. Today, I'm going to be talking about a very, very difficult subject, the death of a baby. I won't be going into detail about the little babies as such, because there's two cases I'm going to talk about, but it's the circumstances leading up to and after the death of the baby that I want to talk about and the impact of investigating those deaths which have affected me to this day and will forever. Most police at some stage in their career, and any emergency service worker for that matter, we get exposed to uh, some tragic scenes and circumstances which never leave us. And I suppose my wish today is that you think about that next time when you see some police having a coffee and seemingly, you know, taking it pretty easy and you might think to yourself, you know, God, that's not a bad job, you know, we're paying their wages. <laughs> we're paying them to be sitting in a cafe having a coffee. But think about what I tell you today and tell me if you think the same next time, and I hope not. The first situation I'm going to be talking about is a SIDS or SUDI, um, sudden infant death of an infant. It's got, you know, they used to call it SIDS and now they call it SUDI. Whatever the name is, it's going to be very tough to listen to. But it's also about a terrible conflict that I had in the first situation I'm going to talk about. You cannot imagine going to the death of a little baby and feeling so many emotions, but one of those emotions being one of anger. Yeah, anger. 
The second one is about a little baby who was murdered by a drugged young man and what taking drugs can do to a person and a community for that matter. I was required to attend a house uh, where a little baby had died unexpectedly, um, you know, a SIDS case. And these cases are up there with death messages. Probably the hardest job any police person or emergency service worker will do. They are tragic, they're traumatic, they're stressful, they're sad, they're emotional, and you dread going to them for all the obvious reasons. A baby is determined to have died from SIDS or SUDI if there's no cause of death that can be identified following an investigation of the death scene, an autopsy and a review of the clinical history. Thus, SIDS is a diagnosis basically of exclusion. So SIDS as a cause of death is determined only when all those other causes have been excluded. And the reason that police attend SIDS or SUDIs is to make sure as best you can that there's no suspicious circumstances and that it is what it seems, a tragic, unexpected, unexplained death. There is nothing like attending a scene yourself and it doesn't matter how much information you're told about a job you're going to or that you have to attend, but to actually visit the scene you get a feel for so many things. And on this particular occasion, we'd received a call from the Ambos that they were attending the death of an infant who'd been found deceased laying next to its mother in the parent's bed. And that was all the information we had. And really, that's all the information you need. And you know, in cases like this, as a police person, and probably anyone else, you drop everything and you literally run out the door. From my point of view, it's not so much about securing the scene or anything of an investigative nature. I just want, wanted to, and I want to be with the parents. I want to comfort them and talk to them and just be with them because I felt this was where my strength was in policing. And I felt rightly or wrongly that I just seemed to feel unusually, strangely comfortable in these situations even though, yes, it's awkward, but I felt that I generally knew what to say uh, and when to say it and how to say it. I'm not saying I was perfect at it, not by a long stretch, but I just felt weirdly comfortable. I felt somehow that this type of situation was my calling. And this particular time, I remember it was summer because it was bloody hot. And I think even at 8.30 when we got this call this particular morning, it was hot by then. And on approach to the house, I felt a sense of dread and sadness. And that had been all the way from the police station to where we were going. I was with a colleague and as I said, that sense of dread and sadness is all the way there in the car. You don't say much to each other, your colleague, because you know what you're going to be confronted with. And it's, it's funny how those gut instincts that I talk about all the time kick in. And, you know, the minute we drove up to the house, I just felt this, um, I don't know how to explain it, but from the outside, the place looked really untidy, unkempt, and I felt 
I knew what the inside was going to be like. And it's funny how the outside of a house often represents the inside. And I knew that if the outside of the house was any indication um, that this wasn't going to be easy and it wasn't. The rear door was the main door that everyone used to go in and out of the house. For whatever reason, the front door was in a really strange place. So everyone used the rear door where you entered it and exited. And the rear door wasn't easy to get to because there was so much junk around. Like there were bikes, there was rubbish, there was, to be honest, it looked like a tip, harsh but fair. Things were just strewn all around the yard and there was just no care whatsoever with the items. Like some of the bikes were missing a wheel, there's old bits and pieces, it just strewn everywhere. And opening the front door, I think we might have got there before the Ambos or just as the Ambos got there, but I remember opening the front door and I was met with a a stench that I knew only too well. And that stench was uh, rotten food, rubbish, dirty clothes, dust, and just a house which had no ventilation. And there was no natural light. All the blinds were closed. And even though at 8.30 of the morning it was hot, but these people had the heater on. And to be honest, it was almost unbearably hot. I, I couldn't imagine that the curtains had been opened in months because the room was so dark and so gloomy. And I'm not making this up. I remember it like it was yesterday. As I walked in that rear door... I saw through a haze of cigarette smoke that I was actually in the kitchen. There was no bench space whatsoever, nothing. Every space in that kitchen was piled high with dirty dishes, with dirty pots, with rotting food, which hadn't been cleaned. There were dirty ashtrays. Uh, this is on just in the, in the kitchen on the bench and there was a half-eaten pizza, and and the pots that were on the bench were stacked, I'm talking four and five pots high. None of them had been washed or emptied. They were just stacked on top of one another. It was like they'd cooked something and just instead of cleaning, they'd just put it on the bench, and then they'd cook something else in another pot and put it on top of that pot. And I, I don't know how people can live like that, but so... I then look through the the kitchen and I into it and it's the lounge room and I can see on the lounge room floor oh, a young uh, little boy maybe two and he was playing on the floor with an older male I presumed might be the father but there was uh, there was no it, it was <laughs> the air was just There was something had obviously happened. And next to this little child that was playing on the the lounge room floor was an opened and clearly cold half-eaten parcel of fish and chips. Uh, There were a few cans of Coke and ashtrays full of stale cigarette butts. I think you're getting my drift, but some of the butts weren't even in ashtrays. And the haze in that house was something that you had to see to believe and the stench was almost unbearable of that rotting food. 
And at this point, even though I'm there for the saddest of cases, I felt an anger rising because I started to think to myself, how could any new little baby survive in this heat, in this smoke haze? And no matter how sad the situation was, I just, in the back of my mind, I was thinking to myself, and I'm ashamed to admit, I'm thinking to myself, no wonder a poor little baby has died in these conditions. It was just too hot. It was a typical lovely hot summer morning and clearly it had been a really hot night. But the curtains were drawn and the heater was on and it was stifling. And at this stage I hadn't even seen the little baby. But that anger was there. And I also felt disgusted, um, disgusted in myself, but also so very, very sad. And it was just such a mixture of emotions. And the mum and dad, they were just so, oh, of course they were distraught. The mother, um, she was, she just didn't know what to do. She was almost walking around in circles, as you would expect. And no matter how I felt, I I still comforted her and I, I felt an overwhelming uh, grief and sadness for her. And even though it was clear that both of them had no idea how to keep a house, no one would ever wish ever what had happened to their little baby or anyone for that matter. And so after talking to the mother and just I don't know, telling her why we were there and trying to comfort her. The dread was coming where I had to go and see the little baby. So she took us into the main bedroom where the little baby was on the bed. And again, that room was so hot. The the blinds again were drawn. And I understand sometimes when you draw the blinds so that the heat can't come in, but it was stifling and the bed had a doona on it which uh, had obviously been slept under and the little baby was on the other side to where the mother had been sleeping and it appeared to be and it was proven to be a tragic case of the mother appearing to have fallen asleep with the baby in her bed and suffocating the little baby and to be honest it wouldn't have taken much for that little baby to suffocate but looking around the room that bedroom was like the rest of the house. There were cigarette butts in an ashtray, but they were also on the bedside table, not in an ashtray. There were a couple of cans of Coke on the table and numerous empty ones that had just been sort of appeared to have just been thrown onto the floor. The Ambos uh, by this stage had come and they went straight to the baby and that's when I left the room. I didn't think, well, I couldn't bear to watch whatever they were doing Um, and I began to speak to the mother again, you know, asking some fairly obvious questions and then um, I began uh, taking photos. I took photos of, you know, the the room and um, not where the baby was. This was outside and I didn't really know what else to do. I found it difficult to control my emotions, which (laughs) it was sad but also I felt that anger and that disgust in a way but oh the sadness was just overwhelming 
And not long afterwards, the Ambos took the little baby out to the ambulance and we continued with the photos. And so I went into the bedroom where the little baby had passed away and took more photos. But there was obviously more questions that we had to ask and now wasn't the time because the parents were accompanying the little baby to hospital. And, you know, I left that house on that day conflicted on so many levels, but I knew that there was something I had to do, which was um, so unpleasant and it seemed to me so unfair. But that was that I felt I had to report the condition of the house um, and my concern for the little two-year-old that was really living in what I could only describe as filth. I wrote the report and sent it to DHS within hours of leaving the house. And um, DHS ended up, um, I believe, providing assistance of all sorts to the parents. And I, I believe that they were given lessons, say, in hygiene and tidiness. Isn't that hard to imagine that a government agency would have to teach you know, two young people, how to tidy up. Like, yeah. So that's, that's one story that I, I wanted to share with you. Because of the, I suppose, the conflict of all those emotions and police deal with that every single day, whether it's the death of a little babe, at the death of anybody, that's why I want you to think twice about when you're seeing them having a coffee, the police that is. The next one I wanted to talk to you about and share with you is a case study of the death of a little baby, uh, nine or ten months old. And this was um, by a, a drug-crazed young man. And the aim of any investigation is to establish whether an offence has occurred, the identity of the offender, the whereabouts of the offender and the nexus being the connection between the offender and the offence. And generally, the local police will take the initial reports of, in this case, a murder, but the local police will then get the help of the local detectives and the local detectives will do some initial and basic inquiries. However, when it's clearly a homicide, as it was in this case, very, very little is done until the homies arrive, the homicide squad, we call them the homies. When the homies arrive, that can be at least a few hours by the time they get a team together and arrive at the destination. And it's their call as to what happens and when, if at all, anything does happen. They'll often give uh, directions as to what they want done or not done and get things moving. And they will often do this en route to wherever they're going. And the local detectives are an integral part of any murder investigation where the homies will come in and not know a great deal about the local area, the local crooks, who's out and about, who's inside, you know, possible uh, persons of interest. The locals have all that knowledge, which the homies don't initially. So once the homies arrive, they set up a, a designated area, generally like a, um, an office within the local police station. And they've generally got an analyst either with them or in contact with them back at the office and they get to work. They don't muck around. There's generally in this office, there's 
a whiteboard which is readied for them by the time they arrive and they really do when the homies arrive they hit the ground running so normally a team will be designated to go to the area where the murder has occurred and you're going to get members of that team to say start concentrating on warrants Uh, what sort of warrant do we need is there a warrant required and gathering information for that warrant? Another couple of detectives might start doing a door knock. Another team might attend the scene with the local detectives who were initially called to the job and another team or another few members will be allocated maybe to the deceased's family. Somebody else might go to the hospital to view the body, accompany the body to the coroner's court and attend the autopsy to report the findings. There's also a detective senior sergeant who is always overseeing everything. And so the homies will have been briefed, um, probably could take a real good hour to be briefed by the local detectives as to what has transpired up until the point when the homies arrive. And so we go to the death of this little boy. It was in June of 2012. He was living with his mum and his mum's partner and his little, uh, his older brother, who was two years old. Both the parents, the father of this little boy, the deceased baby, him and the mother had separated. They weren't together, but they were both co-parenting. And the mum's new boyfriend, I suppose, he'd been around a, oh, I don't know, a couple of years, I think. Oh, doing my maths, that doesn't work, does it? Because the other little boys too. Anyway, <laughs> um, but... The mum's new boyfriend, he's driving back from Adelaide, he's a truck driver, and he arrives home in the early hours of this particular morning. The initial information we have is that the homies have gathered from the local detectives is that the mother and the boyfriend, they had, once he got home from Adelaide, they'd had a few uh, joints, uh, smokes of marijuana, and at some point... They've had a lover's tiff and the mum goes to bed in a half, I suppose. And the boyfriend stays up. He has a few drinks and then he washes his clothes. Mum wakes up the following morning with the two-year-old tapping on on her shoulder to say, Mummy, the door's open. So mum gets up. She finds the keys and the mobile phone gone from their bench. And she does see the door open and she can see that the car has been rifled through. So she calls the police immediately because it's a what well, it's a burglary. So while she's waiting for the police, she goes into the bedroom to check on her little 10-month-old. And he's under the blankets, but she also notices that the baby monitor has been pulled out of the wall. And her little baby is in a, a really strange position and the blankets aren't normal. Um Anyway, she checks the little baby and she finds that he's cold and he's been, he's bruised, he's been assaulted. She screams, as you would, and her boyfriend runs into the bedroom and they, it's, it's, I think it must have been cold because what they did was they carried the little baby out and did CPR at the, on the, at the front of the heater because the little baby was cold. The paramedics arrive and they um, find that the little baby is deceased. Now, that changes everything, obviously, because the police are going there because it's a report of a burglary. But in that, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, 
we now have a deceased little baby who's clearly been assaulted. And that can obviously completely changes everything. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So the homies are advised and they're en route ASAP. And the homies are now in charge with the assistance of the local detectives. So what they're doing is they are dealing with the homies on phone calls. You know, this has happened, that's happened, what do you want us to do? And I've got to say, in these sort of circumstances, local knowledge is invaluable in these types of investigations. And this was no different because both the homies and the CIB work together. But that's like any major crime squad, whether it be the sex crime squad, uh, the armed robbery squad, well, it's not armed robbers anymore, but uh, any of those squads, the arson squad, as I said, the local detectives are just, they have invaluable information. You know, what happens is a couple of hours goes by and the homies arrive and I'm required to assist in conveying the boyfriend to the hospital where the little baby has passed away. The difficulty with this was that we needed to keep the mother and the boyfriend separated because at this point, we don't know their involvement, if any. And our concern is, from a police point of view, is that what if they collaborate? Um, what, if, what if we do give them an opportunity to be together and they possibly come up with an alibi? So it's just so important, an important part of any investigation that you separate, search and secure witnesses, suspects and offenders. And at this stage, we don't know what the mother or the boyfriend are. Are they a witness, a, a is it just a tragic burglary gone wrong? Have they done this? You just don't know. And when I get to the hospital, there's three families outside the hospital, all so distressed. So we've got the mum of the little baby, the boyfriend of the mother, the father of the little baby that is deceased, and they are all there with their families. And the distress... Um, 
it, it is it's hard to convey or to explain how distressing it is to be with people in that sort of a situation where the death of a little baby, but also we've got to keep in mind who's done this. It could be one of these people here. So it yeah, it's <laughs> awkward is probably not a good legal term, but that's what it's like. And remembering that we have to keep the mother and the boyfriend and the father all separate or at least within earshot because we can't let them out of our sight. And we start to think about somebody needs to identify the little baby. And I couldn't, I still to this day can never, ever forget how um, beautifully, I suppose, all the families gelled and all they wanted was the best for the little baby, but also for the mother, the boyfriend and the father of the baby. They all put all their relationship issues aside and all sat down and worked out what was best. I'll never forget how mature they all were in such um, awful circumstances. So they decided that the mother and the father were going to identify the little baby. And so because they certainly weren't suspects, but they were persons of interest because uh, we hadn't been able to exclude anything or include anything. So I had to go in with them to identify their son. And again, that's something that I will never, ever forget. It was the most difficult, excruciating uh <laughs> 15 or 20 minutes I've ever experienced because I couldn't let them out of my sight. So I had to be there to listen to them and watch them say goodbye to their little baby. The The first person of interest that we had to look at was the boyfriend and the father to a lesser extent. But I must admit, initially, it didn't take long for the actual father to be exonerated. That might have taken, I don't know, 24 hours. But the boyfriend ticked a number of boxes. He wasn't the child's natural father. He was new to uh, the stepfather role. Like, I think maybe it might have been about a year or something, but it was a fairly new relationship and he was the stepfather. He wasn't, um, he didn't have a lot of money. Uh, he smoked a fair bit of dope and at this stage we weren't sure whether he was actually dealing in it and the night that he'd arrived home, which was just the night before now, he was tired, he was stressed and he was very hungry. He argued with the mum prior to going to bed like that uh, lover's tiff, as I said, after they'd had a few joints. He went to bed after the mother because the mother, remember me saying she'd sort of had the shits and she went to bed. But he also told us that he'd washed his clothes. He told us all we'd discovered that he'd washed his clothes prior to going to bed. You start to think, washed his clothes? Really? He seemed very indifferent to what had occurred, Like, and remembering that parachute theory, that shock affects people in different ways. Stress affects people in different ways. And he was quite matter-of-fact as to what had happened. Didn't, 
I mean, he was obviously very sad and distressed, but yeah, he was just a bit different. And he seemed to be very naive as to the workings of the police. But on the other hand, he also seemed really caring. He seemed compassionate. He, he seemed concerned for the mum and the other little boy. He seemed to take the new stepfather role uh, like a duck to water. But this is, you know, these are observations from knowing this person for maybe, I don't know, two or three hours. But he also appeared really caring. He appeared really compassionate. Like, yeah, it was quite conflicting. And again, remembering that parachute theory, again, (laughs) um, tunnel vision is a really dangerous thing for a detective to possess. And as the day wore on, investigations were in full swing and both the mother and the boyfriend, from a legal point of view, as I keep saying, needed to be kept separate. So it was cruel because the mother and the boyfriend obviously wanted to comfort each other. But it was about 3pm that I took the mother to the police station. I had to take her because she was still at this point a person of interest. Again, and we didn't really know whether she was involved or not. And I think you'd have to say from, you know, a gut feeling point of view, I didn't think she was, but that's that's not enough in, in legal terms. Um, so what I did was I took her to the police station. This is all with the homies sort of directions. I took her to the police station with the other young son. And by this stage, DHS, uh, the Department of Health, and community services, they were involved and they needed to make sure that the surviving little boy was safe. Because again, how do we know if he's safe? How do we know that at this point, whether the mother or the boyfriend are involved? And what if they were involved? So could we risk putting that little boy back with the mother and the boyfriend? But this mother... She is the mother of a little baby that's just died. You can't imagine the distress, the anxiety. Oh, it, it was painful, to be honest. And I think from 3 p.m. until about 11 p.m. that night, so that morning she's discovered her little baby deceased. Those next five hours or so, whatever it was, at the police station was close to the most frustrating heartbreaking five hours I have ever endured. And as I said, she hadn't just lost one son, but she's fighting to keep her surviving son. I understood both sides, but it was torture. And for whatever reason, DHS couldn't or wouldn't, I don't know what the situation was, but nobody was making a decision. And I remember it had to go to the highest level, like it went to the, I don't know, the local supervisor and then it went to the regional supervisor and then it went to, it just went on and on. The process took forever and appeared to me that no one would make a decision. Eventually, I think at about midnight, the surviving son was ordered by the court to stay with his paternal grandma and the mum could see him supervised until we worked out whether the mum was involved or not. What a cruel, torturous night that would have been. Oh, and you know, at the police station, I was so angry, I could hardly keep myself together. And I think this is towards the 
end where I, my PTSD, my post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, it was coming to the fore. I just, I, I was having trouble holding myself together because I was just that angry. And I remember grabbing the phone from the DHS worker that was with us in this room and it was, she was on the phone to the state director and I can remember, pardon me, I'm going to swear here, but I can remember yelling at this person. I can't remember if it was male or female. And I said, I don't care who the fuck you are, but could you make a fucking decision? I just, it was torture. And, and like we're in a room in the police station that had, it was bare. Like this little two-year-old is just on the, you know, on the floor. Oh, I don't know, we'd found a balloon or I don't know what we'd found for the little ba- little boy to, you know, try and keep him amused. And we're just looking at four walls. I'm, it, it, it was torture. That night I thought my head was going to explode and I think around 2am I finally left the station I, I just couldn't control my anger, my frustration at what just seemed to be so unfair but understandable too. But lots of stuff happened on that day whilst I was at the hospital with the mother and the um, the family and the boyfriend. What we what the um, detectives had found is a, a number of house burglaries that occurred overnight in close proximity to the house where the little baby lived, and. It was a very, very similar, what we call an MO, a modus operandi. So keys, uh, somebody got into the house, the keys were stolen, uh, the cars were rifled through and phones stolen. This had happened a number of times over the last couple of nights. A number of suspects were identified quickly and houses raided. This is during the day when I'm at the hospital and over the following days. And just to add to the complexity of this, the list of persons of interest, there was a local psychiatric hospital where two escapees had not returned and one of which had left a number of teddy bears outside a house that he'd been to previously. Some sort of He had some sort of fascination with babies. And there was also, they uh, the detectives had identified a young ice addict and prolific burglar who was one of the persons of interest who lived just around the corner from the house where the little baby had passed away. So we start to concentrate our efforts on this ice addict and prolific burglar. And the police did a warrant on his house. And what they did was they found a set-top box at his house, which had been stolen from a house opposite where the little baby had died. So that put him in the area. And so at this stage, he is certainly a suspect for the burglaries. A suspect for murder is a whole new ball game, but at the moment he's a suspect for the burglaries. We also found out that this young man had left the area the day after the little baby's murder and he'd gone to another suburb, maybe about an hour away, because he was very close with his father. So the police set about trying to find him. They found out that at the father's house, this young burglar had been checking the internet for news of the burglaries and the murder of this young little baby. We also found out that this um, burglar had cut up his tracksuit. He discarded it and the police knew that this young man was close to his father and they watched his father and he he was found in the car with his father and intercepted. At that stage, he was only a suspect for the burglaries. 
but police started to add two and two together. Certainly didn't have enough to arrest him for murder, but boy, he had their interest. So this young man was formally interviewed for the burglaries and he named an innocent male that he knew as the person that he was with at the Bergs the night of the young uh, baby's death. This innocent male was arrested, but he was released because he provided a watertight alibi. So what sort of a anyone would put in some innocent bloke, you know, to say I did the Bergs with him? Anyway, so he was interviewed for the burglaries, this young man, but he suddenly admitted to a whole heap of other Bergs and he was sentenced very quickly and he went to prison for 12 months. This is for the burglaries. But the investigation into the murder continued and by this stage you'd have to say he was a suspect. So we now have to think about how we're going to find the evidence. We believe that he's responsible for the murder but we're a bit short on evidence and we don't really have that sort of gotcha piece of the puzzle. So we go to what they teach you out at the academy is there's seven sources where you can find evidence. So you search the scene. So what we did was, not I didn't, but the homicide squad, what they did was they went to the burglar's house and they executed a warrant and they found the mum's boyfriend's wallet at the burglar's house. So what that does is that puts him at the house of the murder. They also locate a baton, which they seized. So things were starting to get a bit more serious. They also located some bike boots at the burglar's home that had been stolen from a house close by to where the little baby had been murdered. And a footprint matching these boots was found on the couch in the rear of the little baby's backyard. So then uh, they examine the exhibits and the baton is tested for DNA and they find a match to the little baby on the baton. The boots match the plaster cast located at the rear of the little baby's house. They then go about interviewing more witnesses, information from the public, from informers, from uh, colleagues. They inspect, these are all parts of the seven sources of evidence. They inspect um, official records like council records, electoral roll, births, deaths and marriages. One of the sources of evidence is surveillance of a suspect, his premises and or his vehicle or her. But He is now inside, so surveillance isn't an option, or is it? So I'm not giving anything away here because I think you all know that sometimes undercover police are put in cells, and that's exactly what happened here. And the burglar revealed information that only the killer would know. So he is now the number one suspect for the murder. But what we have to do is the planning for that interview is, oh, you've got to, it is imperative to do everything and every and plan for whatever you can. So that preparation and planning uh, took a long time. But you've also got to think as much as um, you can't imagine somebody murdering a little baby, they also have rights. They uh, Human rights and procedural fairness is a priority. Imagine trying to think of that when you're interviewing a man, a young man that has murdered a baby. And in an interview, listening skills are so important because people think uh, a good investigator is a good talker, but it's actually completely the opposite. 
In the interview, they interviewed um, the burglar in jail, who is now the number one suspect for the murder. And what he says is that his twin brother did the burg and the murder. He is an identical twin. And identical twins have identical DNA. But the twin brother had a watertight alibi. But again, what sort of a person would put in their twin brother or any family member, but a brother or a sister, to actually put them in for, oh, he's the murderer? Anyway, he was charged with murder and um, would you, well, you would believe he pleaded not guilty. At the trial, the jury couldn't be told the extent of this young man's drug habit, how long he'd been a drug user, because it was prejudicial and it could be seen as being unfair to the accused, so it wasn't able to be led. But his history included years of repeated drug abuse, including cannabis, heroin, ecstasy, alcohol and ice. Nor could the jury be told of his priors, which were escalating he had a really he had a long criminal history uh, started at the age of 14 and you know it included it started off with you know minor thefts I don't know of a bike or whatever but it then went to criminal damage agbergs and eventually armed robbery the murder of the little baby and and the series of burglaries and thefts that he had done they were committed 2 months after he was placed on a community corrections order for armed robbery in the dock we can now call him a murderer. In the dock, the murderer winked at police, smirked, he snored, and his family actually harassed witnesses. And his mother actually took photos of him in the dock and posted them on Facebook. Says a lot, doesn't it? I've got to say in closing that this little boy's family was so brave and so courageous. They attended court every single day listening to the horrific evidence that their little boy endured. The burglar never, ever, the murderer, (laughs) never, ever admitted anything. He never gave a reason for killing the little baby. We all believed it was to quieten the little boy so he wouldn't wake up. And I've got to make um, special mention of the mother, the boyfriend and the father because they were so strong and so brave and I have nothing but admiration for them. They were very young but they had a maturity well beyond their years and while I have no doubt that they were all provided well for, they weren't blessed with a lot of material things, wealth, money or privilege but what they did display and had obviously been brought up with money can't buy. They had respect, responsibility in providing a warm and loving home. And whilst the trial is over, um, the murderer is in jail, their pain will stay with him forever. That is two terrible um, investigations I was involved in um, that... I suppose, formed part of the reason I was diagnosed with PTSD. (laughs) Don't know where to go with (laughs) after that, but I think I'll just leave it at that. And please just have a bit of a think about next time you see some police, some of the terrible things that they see. 
that they hold in their hearts and their minds forever. Thank you. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.